For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are joined by a scientist, truly a rocket scientist, and for all intents and purposes, the main genius behind some of the biggest club lines from the past 30 years. He and I have chatted many times, but today we get a much better appreciation for everything he has given to golf and well beyond. This is going to be fun as we are joined by Dr. Benoit Vincent, the former chief technical officer with TaylorMade Golf. And now, well, we'll leave that surprise for later. But doctor, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ralph. We always start our conversations here on the range with a very simple question. How did golf enter into your life? As um, it, it enters actually as an employee, not as a golfer, which is um, I was not a golfer when I was hired um, by um, Salomon, the French company who um, back in the 80s decided to um, um, diversify their um, winter sport activity into a summer sport activity. Um, this French company, Salomon, was based in the Alps and decided that they're going to um, enter golf uh, as a summer sport. Um, and then said so they were hiring um, engineers after they acquired TaylorMade, the, the American company, American-based company. And there was they were in California back then. So they uh, were looking for engineers and they hired me for my mechanical engineering capability, absolutely not for my golf <laughs> capability because <laughs> I never hit a golf club when I joined the company, believe it or not. Let's take a step back because you earned your PhD in mechanical engineering at Institut National des Sciences Appliquées in Lyon, <laughs> and you went to work on jet engines, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's a long time ago, Ralph. Um, it's correct. I um, went to a mechanical engineering um, um, track, and then at the end of my engineering degree, I decided to stay uh, in one of the labs uh, that uh, was specializing vibrations, and we were studying the rotate when a jet engine. Um, rotates it generates a lot of vibrations and you know you can break fans and the shaft and all kind of things can break at those speeds and it's very dangerous of course and so we're trying to predict that so I, I did my PhD in that lab and I continued after uh, as a as a teacher and also as a, um, a researcher and I did that for two or three years when finally um, I went to the private sector. Pardon the pun but I would imagine that that kind of work would have fueled your mechanical passion. I mean, how do you end up in golf design after that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, 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 what was really appealing in sport, in sports equipment, it's, um, it's very challenging to bring equipment to the next level of performance. And then you need to really dig uh, deeply into those um, behaviors, mechanical behaviors of those pieces of equipment in order to perfect them. 
And so that really was what I've done in golf is to understand uh, deeply how they work in the hand of a golfer and how they react in, at the impact during the swing. And, and that, that was a life challenge to um, understand and, and, and really uh, bring new designs that brought new level of performance to, to, to sports equipment in general. I never had a chance to design skis, uh, even though I had a bunch of friends um, back then in France who were designing bindings and skis. I never touched that area. I, I, I only worked into the golf um, division. Do you recall your first golf design project? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very clearly, actually, uh, day one on the work, um, they said on the job, they said, but well, here we go. You're going to design a new shaft uh, for TaylorMade. And that's the reason why you were hired. And uh, we'd like you to um, participate to the development of the bubble shaft. Back then, we did not know that would be the name. It was just a new shaft. And we, we call it the new shaft concept. Uh, NSC, that was, that was kind of uh, the code name for the shaft. And then it started with a very light grip back then. And then it ended up in, you know, six years after I was hired uh, to launch this shaft in uh, actually a bubble shaft in 1995. Yeah, in the United States. Well, and that's probably what a lot of people, as much as TaylorMade was known for having the first metal head, a lot of people got to know them because of that bubble shaft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was quite a, a, a departure uh, in the industry because actually when you think about the shaft uh, was, you know, mainly metals, uh, wood, of course, then metals uh, for a long time. And then the graphite shaft started in the late 70s. Um, I think um, Aldi Latour Gold is what I do remember because that was the first shaft I, I had to benchmark, study, troubleshoot, and then, um, and then we, we brought, I would say, um, something different in the field of golf shaft uh, through the bubble. Uh, it was an interesting venture. Um, and then Ola Zabal <laughs> won the Masters in 1994 with the first bubble shaft. So f for us, that was like um, a validation of uh, the idea. And, and that, that's typically of what uh, TaylorMade was always about, is, hey, when the tour player, the best players in the world um, can play our equipment and win with it. Of course, that, that, that's how we validated equipment. And in those early days, I mean, we talk about you started in France and made your way to California. What was what was that like for you personally? I mean, obviously, professionally, you're, you're going into a hotbed of golf development in that neighborhood. But personally, that, that's such a massive culture shift. Yes, it, it was. It, it, it was. And I, I do remember when my boss uh, back then um, in 1994 said, Benoit, um, it was a Friday night. And he said, Benoit, I, I want you to think over the weekend. Uh, I'd love you to relocate to California because we're going to relocate the research and development department that was developed in France. And then I'd like you to think about it over the weekend. And, you know, it, it talked to my wife. And, and I think within a minute, we said, OK, let's go. <laughs> let's give it a shot. <laughs> Back then, the only thing I knew about California um, as a Frenchman was um, the Americans Cup. You know, that we were watching on TV those boats. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the picture I had of, of course, we had the cliches through the Hollywood movies. But we knew very little. Um, I, I, um, I, I went a few times during the years that I worked for Salomon 
because the way it was organized, we had the R&D department in France and we had the sales marketing department in the United States, in California. So I, I did some trip. So I had a bit of idea. But you know, when those business trip, you go from the airport to the office, to the office, to the restaurant, to the restaurant, to the airport, then you go back to your country. So you never right. really visit. <laughs> but yes, when we arrived here, um, first I had to learn to speak English. <laughs> Let's put it this way. And, uh, uh, not to stop thinking in French when I was speaking. And then we we, we enjoy, we really enjoy the um, the welcoming of um, our Carlsbad team. Uh, it was it was a wonderful reunion to put these two teams together, the, the French engineers and the American um, marketers, I would call. That's the way the divide was created back then. And we had also manufacturing um, employees, people who were in charge of manufacturing in the U.S. So putting all the team together was such a, um, I think, a great experience for me, rather than the split that we lived for the previous five or six years of my life. When you come into the offices there, and as you say, I mean, you really had to build a team of, of developers and engineers and everything else. I mean, the brand had been around for, for years, but not in the operation that it would become. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly the, the major change that happened. To your point, it's the operation. Yeah, the brand was there since um, the late 70s. I think 78 was the start date. But, but the team changed over time. And then the organization uh, of course, um, uh, it was it was remarkable for me to start to um, meet um, a lot of um, engineers and you know train in the United States. And the difference with me, they were all golfers. I was amazed uh, to say I want a mechanical engineer that uh, had a golf background. And and guess what? They were all single digit handicap. With I mean, you had no problem to find people in in France to find a person with single digit handicap. I think you had to you know fly or drive miles and miles away from where I used to live uh, just to find a handful. Here in the United States, suddenly everybody played golf, and and that was wonderful. All people that. Um, I hired back then and who were still at Telomade, actually, you know, Todd Beach, Brett Walden, and I'm thinking about all these people. They were all remarkably single digit handicap golfers and brilliant mechanical engineers. That had to make it more rewarding for them because they're obviously building something not as a scientific project, but as something that they want to use, they want to take to the course. And that has to open your eyes as an engineer to saying, yeah, this, it makes a difference having somebody that actually wants to put the product into play, not just develop it for a consumer. Yeah, that, that, that was, um, that, that was for me, the next step of TaylorMade is I think that um, maybe that was a part of the lack of success of TaylorMade before that, when we were so detached from the market. Um, we were in France, and it's, it's a small golf market far away from the major one, it, that is the United States. And then um, even if we understood with our head, I don't think we understood with our heart what to do. And when we finally came to the United States and, and met all these um, passionate golfers, I think the intuition plus the intelligence uh, together really was the, the, the real start of the, of the Telemed as we know it, uh, connected not only to the market, but connected to the tour players, able to speak their language, uh, understand them um, in, in a much deeper way than we could just if it would be a scientific project. 
Now, I've talked with Sean Toulon about those early days, and I wonder what the direction, how that changed in terms of, okay, now everyone is on this path. Are we looking at incremental changes at that point, or are we still, or were you looking at a big monumental discoveries in golf club design? So if, if we talk back then um, and today, I think it's the same spirit. I, I um, it, it, We may have lost one year here or two in the past, our, our path at Tillman, and that's when we were a little less successful. But when we were... Uh, um, coming back alive and strong. And then when we are today, it's always the same recipe is innovation is at core. And that's maybe the mechanical engineering speaking here louder, but also um, products that are really enjoyed and played by the best player in the world. And th- th- that's, you know, the golfers here are playing a major role. Yes, we're, we're here constantly to elevate the level of performance of equipment and, and for the best players. And so we, um, if, if you think about in, in 2000, I just, I, you'll ask me the questions you want later on, but in 2000, there was this turn um, about the small head to, the, to, to titanium head um, bigger than 300 cc. That, that was the volume of the head grew massively pretty much around the year 2000. So that was um, one key factor. And the second key factor was the the face became faster. They deliver more ball speed. And we're talking about like a few miles per hour of ball speed just by making the face flexible. These two things, larger head and flexible faces, delivered a, a, a radically new level of performance to golf equipment in 2000. And it, even if previous inventions were made, of course, cavity backs and all, I mean, a, a lot of things. Were, but the year 2000 was a significant um, uh, turn in equipment performance. And in the last 20 years, we built on these uh, revolutions and we added more and more of them um, that, that really, really brought the equipment to the next level. Well, I think about it in terms of golf balls, when the Pro V1 came out, it completely changed the direction of golf ball development. Like it basically made a left turn and it never came back. And I have to imagine that it was kind of the same thing in that with, with club design, is once you figured out how to make a, a thinner, faster, more flexible face, everything changed and, and you could go in a totally different direction. Yeah, I, I, f- I forgot the turn in golf ball. Yeah, it, it happens actually, yeah, about the same time. Mm-hmm. When, the, yeah, when the multi-layer solid golf ball uh, like obsoleted overnight the wound ball. Um, yeah, the, the, we, we played, I mean, balls never, never return to that old design. And similarly in, in golf club, I think um, once we enter the titanium world, um, that's 2000, every driver were made of titanium. We no longer could make a driver made of steel. Uh, we could not make them larger than 270 cc. Uh, and then so, so we, we broke the barrier of volume with titanium, and then we never, we never could return. And what the journey was about for 20 years was to try to save as much material. And to, we, we thinned those walls of those drivers as much as we could in order to use material where we needed it, mm-hmm. not to create volume, but to generate performance. Movable weights, name it. 
that, that the search for weight um, was a 20-year uh, long search to deliver um, this new level of innovation. I've thought, and it's funny, I mean, you talk about the thinning of the walls and the titanium as being a technological leap. To me, the biggest leap that I was aware of was the arrival, the addition of movable weight technology. Can you walk us through how that process began? Because I know that's not a, hey, next year we're coming out with this club. No, this is something that took <laughs> years to develop. Yes, it did. It, it did. The, 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 the whole um, dream was, um, could we tailor the trajectory of a driver which is, could it, if, if, can we make it having a little bit of more left tendency, right tendency, flight a little higher, flight a little lower? If we could tailor the trajectory of a, of a driver, and th that would be depending on, on the need of the golfer, th that would be gravy. So, so we, we did that on tour every day. We were putting more weight here, more weight there. And, but the, the, the old technique was lead tape. We know that. We've been seeing that for years. Or that later on, we would inject um, some, you know, epoxy loaded with tungsten, and we would weight the golf club in a certain way to 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 tailor uh, the trajectory of some of those um, golfers on tour. But that was painful, tedious, uh, expensive, and trial and error. It was a lot of work. We could do that for few players. We could not do that for every golfer in the world. And, and so that was the starting point to say, what we do for the best, we need to be able to figure out a way to do it for every golfer in the world. So that, that was the mission. Now, it's easy to say, it's, it's hard to do. A, a lot of patents existed that describe different ways to adjust the weight. But first, you need to have weight available because we were using back then all our weight just to make a shell, just to make a volume. So when we started to understand how to thin those walls in titanium, make them from one millimeter to 0 0.8, 0 0.7, so with 30% of the weight, and now we had 20, 30 grams in hand to do something with it. Now that now we knew how to save, we need to know how to put them back and exchange them. And I do remember um, some of uh, those brainstorming in R&D to try to do that, up to when we had that um, a famous engineer who was a, a, is still with Thelman, brilliant engineer who came from the bike industry and say, hey, you know, we have this mechanism that we know how to, you know, attach, detach very easily. And so we imagine that the golfer could change that himself or herself. And, and, and he proposed a, a, a quick mechanism, a waiting mechanism to, um, to attach and to release and, and it's based pretty much on, on, on lodging a cylinder into a cylindrical opening. And then if you can tighten your little plug into a opening, the friction was strong enough to overcome the impact. And that's, that, that, was, that, that was the opening and the rest was history. I remember a product presentation in Orlando at Bay Hill. Uh, and honestly... It was a little bit too much for, I think, some of the assembled media to really 
grasp onto because they were more interested and intrigued by the magnetic head cover with the uh, with the TP model than they actually were with the club tech. I mean, because this was so next level that they didn't quite appreciate how big this was. <laughs> I I do remember that to introduce that magnetic head cover at that opportunity, yeah, especially on the TP version, it was it was beautiful. It was finally you didn't have to fight with a head cover to take it off <laughs> to, to to reveal your driver. But yeah, it, it was it was a revolution, and and the proof, you know, I use this word uh, in golf when you see that it's a long term tendency. Um, it's easy to create something that lasts for a year or two. And we've done some of those um, over the years. When we introduce something, we believe it's going to be great. Uh, today, more than 15 years, we know that. So we know it's a need for the golfer. We know it's a technology that is highly valuable. Now, the way we're moving, designing those weights have evolved over the years um, from the first generation of movable weight that, as we know, those little cylinder piece to today, those little um, rectangles that are sliding in openings, in tracks. So the, the, the way we, oh, we execute that idea is different, but it's still fundamentally the same idea. I'm going to just go out on a limb and take credit for something that probably was already in development, but I don't care. I'll take credit for it here. Uh, because I remember at that launch talking to you and Tom Olsavsky and suggesting, you know, if you put these weights in the corners of a putter, it would be really stable. And sure enough, two years later, the spider came out. So I'm going to take credit for that one. Uh, we'll, we'll give you full credit for that. I'm not sure we'll give you money for it, but <laughs> you would have to speak to TaylorMade for that. But yeah, that, to your point, Ralph, is this idea of movable weight is uh, it's a great idea, not only for um, for drivers, but also for fairways. We, we try to implement it in irons. It's a little more cumbersome. It's difficult. The platform, they're, they're small. It's a small piece of equipment. But in putter, when we have a larger platform, we have more space to implement them. It works. And we know toe balance. Um, you know, putters are, have been around versus balanced putters forever. So we know that some golfers need some different weighting system for the head. And so it's great that we can adjust uh, the same way um, putters as we do drivers. I think about what, club design was and, and club uh, marketing and everything was before R7. I think about it in recent years. Here you had something that was so monumental that you literally went with the same brand for a few years, that you went with R7, R7 425 and R7 460, which is a year later. Then the R7 Super Quad, which is a year after that. Like you actually said you know what, this is so good, we're going to keep this brand name going as we continue to improve the technology. Yeah, and, and there, there were, yeah, it's true that um, we, we kept that idea for a while, and, and, and R9, actually, that comes after, was another revolution. Um, we can talk about that or not. But if we stay on the R7, is the first one, we wanted to have four little weights, um, of course, in R&D, I, I, I thought to have only two to start. It would be easier to design. But I do remember internal battle with <laughs> with my colleagues. They say, no, we need to have four, otherwise it won't be a, a good product. So we, we debated. We, so we figured out technically how to launch the first R7 with four movable weights. Movable weights. And, and, and so because you have the lodging, the, inf the, 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 the 
the equipment, I mean, the part of the head that needs to welcome those weights, uh, let's call it the infrastructure lodging, if you want to, that was consuming weights in addition to the forward. So actually, we, mm-hmm. we need a lot of weights to hold them and, and the weight themselves. So because of that, the first R7 was only 400 cc, and the USGA limit was for 60. So we really wanted to deliver a movable a driver movable weight with four weights that was 460 cc. And that's the quest of the R7 line. We fought for two or three years technically to try to thin those walls of the titanium driver more and more and more from 090807 to be able to finally deliver the super quad of 460cc with four movable weights. And while you're doing all this, you were starting an entire golf ball line, uh, working with Dean Snell on the TP Red and the TP Black. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an old memory too. Yeah, yeah we... Um, in parallel to all this effort in the club area, it's true that TaylorMade aspired to also deliver a golf ball. I, I, I think that um, if you want to um, equip uh, players, uh, the, the golf ball was a natural one. You use it on every shot. And, and so I, I don't think you could be a serious golf brand without understanding the ball and, and, and offering something. So I think it was, it was natural for TaylorMade to be in the ball business now it was not easy. Even that was that, that was uh, that, that was normal. That was very very logical to be in this business. It, it was an adventure. That was a, a one of maybe my toughest professional adventure because uh, I started the ball division at TaylorMade. When I say I, I mean I was in charge of the technical development of the ball in 1997. And I think that, um, and Dean Snell was one of the first employee actually that met, that um, who, who joined the team. And I, I think we started to be successful 10 to maybe 15 years later uh, in the golf ball. It took us, let's call it 10 to 15 years to figure out how to make a good golf ball. Um, that, that, was a, that was a hard journey. And I'm so happy, so happy, you have no idea about the fact that now uh, TaylorMade with the TP5, TP5X line of product have finally found um, its way to deliver a golf ball that many, many, many great golfers rely on and, you know, to win or to play uh, at the highest level. Um, That's for me, um, you know, the driver, TaylorMade proved that they could make the first best driver. That's how they were created. And then what we did is we, we, we continued that journey in golf ball, it was different. There was nothing uh, when we started to engage there. And then, and finally, I would say 24 years after the start of that journey, I think we're a decent player, uh, more than a decent player. We're a real player in, the, in this ball. And there is a real innovation offering in golf ball uh, on the market. Was it easier to make a golf ball once it changed to being a solid core? Like now, you don't have to worry about all the variables that go into a wound ball. You focus on let's figure out how to develop a great core and then figure out how to create different layers to go on top of it. In a way, to a layperson like myself, that seems like an easier process than trying to make a great wound ball. Yeah, you know, um, the easiness of uh, design or manufacturing, um, that's a those two words never should go together. There's nothing easy. easier. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I've learned it the hard way over my years is uh, every single little change is make your life really hard, especially when you have to make millions of those. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a little different than, you know, we don't, we sell dozens, but you play with one ball at a time. But, but to, to, just to say something is, you know, the, the five layers of the new golf balls that, um, that we finally settled on um, to, to go on the market with, the, the, there's five layers. Each layer needs a, a full attention. There are different material, different processes, mm-hmm. the, the, putting them together, making sure they are compatible, they work together. It, it, it's complicated. And, and what happened is what we discovered is if we want to have a ball that performs differently from the driver to the wedges a, along the segment, that just doesn't you know, behave one way and just linearly evolves. If you want a performance that is adjusting um, along the, the set, you, you really need to have way much more than one layer because with one layer, you kind of have one performance if you want to. So you need to have, we, we use the word in, in, in technology, we use the word degrees of freedom. I mean, you, you need to have like five degrees, five different design components to be able to tailor the, the performance. And to, to say simply, as you, you, for example, you want to lower your spin on a driver to maximum your distance. You want to maximize your spins around the green to maximize holding the balls when you, when you do those wet shots. And, and, and it takes all these layers to be able to refine the performance of the golf balls. And that's complicated. I think to the first launch of the Pentaball and getting a five-layer patent on a golf ball, I think that the true recognition of how great and significant that was is when that patent ultimately runs out, every manufacturer is going to be releasing a five-layer ball because they can't do it right now. And they're just waiting for that clock to run out because the technology is so crucial. Yeah, it, it, it is correct that we can achieve, um, we, we can deliver performance that I've been, I would say not, other, not any other balls can do with only three layers or even four layers. That's for sure. Um, that this pattern war in golf is, is an interesting one. Uh, because I think I lived with lawyers my whole life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't want to give me a, a law, an honorary degree, but um, I, I think I spent a tremendous of, of time, and that's an interesting comment you made here, is as a part of the development of equipment, we're trying to protect our inventions, write patents, own that for 17, 20 years, whatever. And then, um, and after, yeah, the competition is up, you'd better have moved on the next inventions like that. It doesn't matter if your patent's obsolete, you're on the next one, on the next great thing. I imagine as chief technical officer overseeing all the people that are geniuses in their own right, making golf club, golf ball designs, that there was, there was a battle below you of who could get ideas to you that you would buy into that you would be convinced this could be a great golf club because the competition was fierce to be recognized with development it, it is an industry that has um, that it has been stable i mean uh, th- there was a little bit of growth during the 2000 years as far as the number of players i think in the word if if I remember correctly, it's about fifty to sixty million golfers in a, in a, in a world, and that hasn't changed in in the last thirty or forty years. It's it's about the same number of golfers. Not until the last year, 
Yeah, the last year they've whoosh, taken off, but yeah. They took it off, yeah. But the question, we, we saw that during the Tigers' years initially. We saw mm-hmm. also some peak, I would say five or eight million more golfers came, but they left within a decade and, right. and, and we came back. So we, we see over the years, over the decades, we see peaks here and there. But overall, when you leverage the, the, the whole, you know, 30, 40 years, it's, it's, a, it's the same. So the pie is the same. So to your point, it's a very competitive world. The good news is the pie doesn't shrink um, too, too badly, too, too strongly. So it's, it's still the same pie, but nevertheless, it's competitive. So how do you um, keep or increase your, your, your part of the pie? Is you've got to be competitive. You uh, find better ideas than your competition, and you have to protect them. So to your point, Ralph, is we, our strategy at Telemade was really to hire great, great, brilliant engineers and then invest in the design of product uh, in, a, in a significant way in order to deliver great performance. And of course, you, you can, as I started to talk to you about, if you just go from an intellectual or mechanical approach, you, you, it's not enough by being connected to the best golfers and testing our ideas with them, we really can um, imagine and, and sense where what, what's meaningful for them and, and how to uh, deliver uh, and choose. Because you, you have so many things you can do, but they're not all making sense. And it's the one that really are the most meaningful that really resonates with, with golfers. And that's how you, you win the competition. It just popped in my head the fact that you also had developed back in the 2000s you developed the mat system which allowed you to analyze how everything was working together so it's not only just building golf balls building golf clubs but building a way to really understand and measure how they're performing yeah it, it, i often describe the, the the work of research and development as <clears throat> you design you make you test and, and so what you're referring to is the testing part of it, which is if you, if you want to understand um, performance in golf, you, you need to develop really um, very um, accurate and, 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 and performing um, testing equipment. And so the one you mentioned, uh, the math system, allowed us to analyze the swing um, how the golfer were, um, how golfers were presenting golf clubs, uh, you know, at impact, and how they um, manipulate their, their product. It, you, you know, the, the closest, as I used uh, to, to describe that, the closest the product is to your, the hand of the golfer, and the more the golfer um, plays a role. So the grip, the shaft, are, are, are more in, you know, they, they need to fit the golfer. Uh, there is an attunement that needs to be really taken care of here versus the golf ball. The golf ball has more mechanical behavior. It's uh, away from the hand of the golfer. So, yes, we, we spend um, tremendous energy to understand how golfers were swinging. And we did that with all categories of golfers for years, millions and millions of swings in order to understand what to do and how to design equipment better. Again, it just pops in my head as I think back to your first job was designing shaft for clubs. And now that's widely another company entirely that's designing their shafts and you're building clubs to work with them, fitting different golfers. But the whole idea of of a, a shaft coming from the club maker is 
that's long since gone. Yeah, what's what's really gone is this idea of um, us, um, the the club designers, um, manufacturing the shaft ourselves. Um, that that was the, that was um, we always design our shafts with our um, partners, um, the vendors in golf who are specializing in um, carbon fibers, graphite. Um, manufacturing processes. So we always design um, with our partners, but we, uh, I think we believed at some point in our life that we could make those parts ourselves. And that's the idea that we entertained for a while and we, we went back and we re- reverted back to, no, let's just design with them. The manufacturing portion will right. be in the hand of our partner. In golf ball, it's different. In golf ball, um, we, we, you know, we're doing a mix bottle where we make our high-end golf balls, and some uh, our partners are making some other part of the golf balls, some other uh, golf balls in the, in the line of product. So we, we different strategy, but it was the design stayed in the hand of of uh, the Telemed R and D department. As chief technical officer, how would your position relate with everyone else in design? Obviously, you're at the top of that ladder, but it's not just a boss. I imagine you had to be a mentor, a coach, but also an administrator. All those things wrapped up. But do you think you tended in one direction or another in terms of how you worked with the team uh, over the course of developing product? Um, initially, I was um, when the team was small um, in the early 2000s, I, I was very involved technically with the design of the product directly. And then as the team grew, my role changed dramatically to your point, Ralph, is um, I I became more than an administrator of a large department of engineers. And and what what does it mean? Does it mean that I was pushing paperwork around? Absolutely not. Uh, I think that there was not a day uh, where I was not reviewing large numbers of technical reports or discussing or being in meeting to talk about. But at this point, I was more uh, looking at um, the design from just um, the report point of view, which is I saw what's going to be designed. I saw testing reports and we would discuss directions. So I I was not involved in in designing myself or testing myself anymore. But I I still had up to my latest days, some some fun days uh, with the robots. Uh, (laughs) I still wanted to see firsthand how a golf club would perform, or I would would go to see a a player test, a player testing um, uh, uh, being run. But, but, what really, when I look at my my role at the end, it was mainly to make sure that I had a team that could work um, in, in a way that it would constantly deliver um, innovation uh, consistently. And that was the word because, you know, you can do that one day, one time, one year. It's easy to have a one-time shot of being great. What's really hard is to do that every year, 15, 20 years in a row. So I was consumed more to make sure that I was hiring, training, and and managing people in a way that they were developing, they were growing 
in, in, in the way they were expressing themselves and they had the freedom to really innovate in this department. And those words seem simple, but you know, to, to constantly seek how to express, to have every engineer express their talent was a, was a, was a daily, for me, a daily preoccupation. Um, and and the, at the end of it, uh, I think my best reward on earth is the fact that my successor uh, was uh, is someone that was in a team. We didn't have to seek for someone outside the team to do that. And then more to it, the team is still there together without me deliver consistently performance and innovation, which proved that I, I think I, um, I left behind um, a, a great culture. Well, it's funny you say that, literally that word, because the next thing I was going to point out was you were considered a cultural leader there within the company, not just in design, but I mean, overall, you were ahead of the culture. <laughs> Thanks. Those are nice words uh, on your part, Ralph. Is, uh, it, what I think I, um, I stayed true to um, was, um, I would say, very, very few simple things. First, um, true innovation. I was true to that. So I was very instrumental on, on fostering advanced development, which is what are we going to do in two, three, four years? And how did I do that? I make sure that we had resources dedicated for the future, not only dedicated for the product to develop tomorrow. It's, it's an internal battle to say, yes, uh, we're going to hire this engineer and he's not going to be consumed for what we have to design this year. No, we have a big problem on the product we have to launch. It's okay. We're not going to pull that engineer in. He is busy with two, three years out. <laughs> so I, I, I can tell you that those are internal battles that are interesting. But So I stayed true to that. I stayed, to, to, I, I, I stayed true to collaboration all these years. I think a, a, an employee would be always valued for his technical competence, but also for his ability to work with others. And I, I, I think I, I put training in place um, every year. I put all these engineers in massive amount of training on personal skill set in order to work with each other, to, to, to have languages, to deal with their differences, with their difficulties to collaborate. Because uh, and uh, that was important. So that, that I was true. And then, of course, um, there was a, maybe you've heard about it. There's one of my pep, um, um, I would say, the personal development that I've fostered over the years, which is what we call coaching. So I developed a culture where um, peers could coach other people into the company like this. They had someone safe to speak to. Um, about um, how to, to be a, a better person. And that, that was a, also a part of the culture. One item you and I talked about many years ago was the idea of essentially turning golf on its head, ignoring the rules, and creating golf clubs that had some performance characteristics, but they were built for true beginners. Whether they were children or even adults, these were like adult-sized toy clubs. And I know that the ability to grow the game using technology was something that really meant a lot to you. Yeah, it, it, it's true that you hear me often talk about the best players in the world. And then uh, what about the rest? <laughs> and and what, we, what we've learned is that those technologies that we develop for, for the best, there is uh, always, always an application 
always a way to use those inventions to uh, enhance the game of every golfer. Um, children, um, beginners, um, confirmed golfers, wh whatever level you have um, and, and whatever uh, where you are on your, your personal development. Um, it, it, we, I, I think we, we have not uh, maybe pushed that idea as, as far as I wished with maybe children um, than, than what we've done with maybe more adult. Uh, if there is something that in my past, I, I wish we had done more, uh, that would be one area. But um, I, I think um, once you turn, you know, a young, a, a teenager to a, an old adult, I think we, we have, we've covered the needs for many, many, many golfers. One of the ideas was, look, let's just have courses that have bigger holes so that it's easier to make putts. Let's, let's make the game more easy for those that are trying to get into it so that they can really become hooked and addicted like we all are. Yeah, we, we try to promote some of those revolutionary ideas, to your point, is we, we try to open golf to um, some other avenues. We, we see some um, applications of that here and there. Soccer ball, so soccer golf, I think, is mm -hmm. one of those. That Foot golf, yes. Foot golf, yeah, I think it's called, yeah. Um, that Frisbee golf is something also that uh, mm -hmm. take up. It's actually bringing people to a place that was exclusively exclusively reserved to um, only golfers. I think having some people who've never played golf, bringing them to this field is um, and enjoying the environment and what it feels to be on those holes in another way. I think that that's one way to open the game of golf, not only just playing, but being in the environment of um, of a golf course. In 2017, it was announced that you were going to retire from TaylorMade, and you said to me, well, Ralph, I'm, I'm going to go back to school. I thought you were kidding. You know, Maybe you're going to go and pursue something fun, light, just enjoy yourself. No, you went headfirst into an entirely new career. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I now know what it feels like to do what I decided to do back then. Um, yeah, 2017 was a was interesting year in my life. Um, when I say, okay, I'm I'm at the peak of my golf career. I I know what to do. I have a great intuition. I know how to lead a, a fabulous team. Uh, and then you know who quits when you are like that usually you know you leave when it you kind of go down a little bit and you know you start it. no i quit when i was at my best and and that, that was i i can tell you it's easy to say it, it's a little harder to do i do remember pushing my carts with all my uh, boxes for my office and on at six o'clock one night <laughs> when nobody was there uh, and it was hard. Let's put it this way: to to load my car with all these boxes was a hard moment in my life. Um, to leave behind me, you know, what I've loved for thirty years. But what I've discovered since I went back to school to get a, a master in family therapy, master degree. Um, it, it's one of those degrees that you only have to do a master. You don't have to do a PsyD or PhD again <laughs> and to, to, to obtain a license in the state of California and to be able to be a therapist. And so that's the route I took. Um, went back to school, you know, sat down 
uh, got grounded sometimes because I, you know, didn't turn my paper on time or arrive five minutes late. I, I live the life of a student. <laughs> I got, got points off of my essay because I was maybe a little too strong with the teacher in one of my comments one time. I do even remember. So I, I live the life of a real student, wrote a lot of paper, read a lot of documents, took exams. And then, you know, um, three years later, I just graduated last year with my master. It was the COVID year. So like many, many students in the United States, I, um, I, I was, um, I was uh, deprived from this huge reward that actually all students deserve when they accomplish the work that they accomplish. I, 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 I felt, of course, I felt less frustrated because it was not my first degree. Uh, I already had my 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 reward in the past, but I, I really was falling, feeling a feeling. Sorry, I was feeling for all these students that, like me, couldn't enjoy the the real party. Nevertheless, graduated, and then um, I'm in the field uh, every day. I'm um, I'm speaking to clients, and it's wonderful life. Talk about how much that work fulfills what had been a lifelong passion. I mean, you talk about you, you achieve so much in golf and technical mechanical in innovation, but now you get to go into this totally different direction, still help people in a totally different way. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it, it is. And it's not a real departure because as you've heard me saying is, um, I, I, the last 10 years of my life at Tenement, I was managing a large team of people. So I, I, I was dealing with more, um, understanding how to um, grow uh, every employee and how to put them in the best job, in the best task, best project, in order to to help them uh, grow and, and and express themselves. And and so so I was already um, you know spending way much more time and thinking about people than than really uh, designing product. And and that that was as as somehow a natural transition for me to say, okay, let's let's just forget the technical side and spend my whole time with just people to see how to uh, help them, uh, you know, improve their lives and make better choices for themselves and, and make choices that they, they would not, maybe they would hesitate to do otherwise because they would be in the grip of all patterns and, and, and fears. And so it's um, it, what I discovered in this job is I'm I'm kind of doing a little bit the same as far as promoting finding better ways to live your life. Uh, now I I wouldn't hide for you that the people that I speak to now they 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 may come uh, at the beginning of their journey with me um, uh, with more suffering, more psychic suffering than uh, than the employees that I was working with. Um, for for many reasons, historical reason in their lives, and and so th there's more work to do. Um, but that's the reason why I'm doing that. Uh, you know, hundred percent of my time. In your years in the industry exposed you to so many different unique business practices. You talked about you practically had to have a law degree at this point because of all the different things you've done and the coaching of the people. You've been a professional coach for a number of years before this, just trying to help people find their way forward in business. Yeah, it, it it is true. Yeah, it is true that I also you reminded me that I uh, I've been practicing business coaching for many years as well. So that was a, a great preparation also for the jump. And to your point is everyone is trying to find not only the project of of his or her life, 
but also at work, they're trying to find the best business model, the best way to work together as a team, the best organization. And so that, that's maybe one of the way I stayed engaged with my previous uh, position, which is in my business coaching activity, where actually I meet a lot of leaders uh, who are trying to perfect um, the way they work and, and the environment they create. And it's amazing how really when you, you hear over and over and over that an organization is pretty much as good as their leaders um, because it starts right there. Um, I, I, I know we hired a lot of talented employees, but you can create um, very different cultures uh, depending on the leaders. I always use the analogy of an orchestra. Um, the conductor doesn't play any instrument, but the symphony can really sounds very different depending on the conductor. We always wrap up our talks here on the range by jumping into the Wayback Machine. And honestly, if there actually was a time machine, the only person I know who might have invented it is you. So, but as we go back, we look at your club portfolio. And is there a model or two that jump out because of either their technical innovation or just a personal fondness that you hold for them? Mm, my my preferred product is is um, is always a, an interesting question. Um, you know, the problem we have is the latest one is so good. Well, that's normal. Normally when I'm talking with people that are actively designing, I say, you can't talk about the latest. It's about what means the most to you in your heart. Like what, you know, when you think of a club, I know that there's already one that popped in your head that it's like, that one was always special to me. And, and it's not maybe the best performing club, but there's a reason it meant so much. Yeah, of course. No, I, I, I think that, and you pointed out during your questions, the R7 was a turn was a massive turn in in everything. It was it was a huge technical leapfrog. I mean, it was like a, we had lead tape for hundred years, and suddenly we could do the same thing in a way much more efficient way. So it it, it was such a technology breakthrough uh, that lasts for so long. There was another reason is because it was also it it it, it solved so many problems we had. Imagine when our um, employees were fitting a tour player on a weekly basis, they would leave them with five drivers, let them test it during the week, come back the week after and hear the comments and try to give them five more drivers, balance differently. And then they would do that for months. Mm -hmm. And then to, to do the exact same thing, we, it, it would take us 15, 20 minutes on a range. I mean, it was... Not only it was a design revolution, but the, the, what we could do for those best players in, in such a time, in such an efficient way, was a dramatic departure from all the practices we've done for the previous 30 or 40 years of our lives. And of course, we did the same thing with all the golfers in the world, but, but it started at the tour level to, to show it, its value. And then finally, it's when... I would say it's when we, we really took off, um, you know, we, we beat our competition. We, we regained our number one position. I'm, I'm always a little, you know, hesitant to, to, to go out, you know, speak about our wartime. But, hey, you know, number one, number two, number three, you try to be number one in your field. And I think that that's when we regain our number one position as a, as a, a driver company 
uh, a, a company who's selling driver, and then of course as a as a, a company in making golf clubs. Uh, it, it was a massive moment in my life when I joined TaylorMade in '89. Um, and, and we were number one in golf, and we lost that position uh, the first 15 years um, of my my life with TaylorMade. And you know, it it doesn't feel good to lose what you gain so hardly, and when you join the company for. And I was so proud that 15 years later, going down, losing that ground, we regained that position. We, we, you know, after all, we love to be on the podium. You don't want to be on the third. You, you want to be on the first one. And that, that's natural. That felt really good. Well, when you told me you were retiring back in 2017, I worked feverishly to get an interview scheduled to talk about your amazing career. And sadly, that never came to pass. So literally this talk has been in production in my brain for four years. So you've had an amazing career in golf. Even more important is what you're doing now in therapy and counseling. I'm sure you know how much the latter helps people. I mean, you see that, but I hope you realize how many millions of folks you've touched over the years with your mechanical genius. And I want to thank you for all those years. And thanks for joining us here on the range. Thank you for having me. Well, it was such a pleasure. That was Dr. Benoit Vincent, and truly, I have enjoyed so many wonderful talks with him, both in formal settings or just as a matter of simple side conversation. His passion for his work was always evident, and when he told me he was retiring, I could see just as much excitement as he talked about this next venture as I would see when he introduced a brand new driver. Imagine entering into the world of golf, having never swung a club and building a team, an operation that would dominate the golf equipment world. Movable weight technology, mastering multi-layer golf ball production, evolving into shaft customization. His work and leadership has truly led to the equipment that we play now. It's easy to forget how far technology has come in the last 15 to 20 years. So instead, let's celebrate the many people like Dr. Benoit Vincent, who have helped it advance along its journey. And now, the doctor has done it again, committing to helping people in their everyday lives. He's just an amazing man, and I'm so fortunate to have known him over the years, and I'm also glad that I could share this talk with you all. Of course, we continue to share what's new in golf equipment, and you can learn all about that with the Golf Spotlight. We are dropping new features all the time, looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. Go to thegolfspotlight.com. Click on the YouTube subscribe button and turn on those notifications so you never miss one of our features. There is a lot to catch up on. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at The Golf Spotlight. We're also on Twitter at Golf Spotlight. We welcome your comments everywhere. You've listened this far, so subscribe to the range and Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That will do it for this episode of The Range, so let's hit the course and appreciate all the genius that went into every club, ball, bag, glove, and shoe that you use every round. And to honor those geniuses, why don't you engineer some amazing play out there? And we'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.